LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Sean Chamberlain author of the Transition Timeline and the man behind DarkOptimism.org, which explores the interwoven challenges facing our global community and how we can create a joyful and resilient shared future in the face of them. Our discussion deals with the Transition Network and the shift to a sustainable society in response to global environmental and energy crises. Hello and welcome Sean Chamberlain and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. That's a pleasure to be with you. Now, Sean, we're here today in general to talk about the transition movement, uh, both here in the UK and, and somewhat globally as well. And yep. the, the, um, the transition movement and transition towns are basically responses to the, the crisis we're facing regarding peak oil and, of course, climate change. And it's a broad-based... Um, yeah, and, and really the economic sort of crisis as well. Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, who can, who can ignore that now? And mm. it's a broad-based plan of action, the transition movement. It involves uh, awareness raising, uh, local currencies and localism generally, self-sufficiency, and, of course, in, enabling people and the places they live to, to use less energy, and in that way turn what's basically a crisis into an opportunity for a radical rethink of how we live and base change for the better and for a sustainable future and most of these ideas are encapsulated in a book that you wrote in 2009 called the transition timeline which people can if they're not aware of it can get um <clears throat> get the skinny on the whole situation there but before we get into the issues perhaps you could just give us a brief bio some background on you and how you came to get involved with this work okay well um i was basically before before getting involved with all this stuff i was working as the manager of a a learning centre for marginalised groups, so drug misusers and people with mental health problems and uh, particularly young asylum seekers as well. Um, and in my spare time, and this was around um, sort of 2000, 2001, um, learning about sort of peak oil and climate change in particular. And peak oil at the time was, was quite a fringe thing. I remember there was a sort of one online resource which was called dieoff.org, which, um, which is actually a technical sort of oil industry term, but it sort of sums up the... Uh, the sort of take on on the on the future of civilization that the um, that the author of the website had, um, and so in my spare time I was learning about this stuff, and I got to the point eventually where I felt, you know, I, I loved the work I was doing, but I felt, well, what's the point of helping people reintegrate with society if society itself seems to be to be running off a cliff, as it were? Um, and so in the end, I I left that job, um, uh, learned to live very cheaply basically lived off my savings that I'd saved in that job for what ended up being about a year um, spent that time sort of reading everything I could get my hands on going along to talks and events and harassing people who seemed to know what they were talking about um, and then in uh, 2000, 2005 I think it was 
um, went down to a residential course at a place called Schumacher College in Devon. Um, and some of the sort of teachers on that course were people like Richard Heinberg, who's been one of the key educators on peak oil, um, and Rob Hopkins, who had just at that point basically just come up with the idea of, of transition towns. Um, another one I should mention is David Fleming, who became my sort of mentor in many ways, and uh, he was responsible for, for coming up with this idea of, of tradable energy quotas, which is sort of energy rationing scheme. Um, but I remember there was there was one guy, Ben Brangwin, who was a, a fellow student on the course, um, and he and I were both in a similar place. We'd sort of been, been following one career path and felt, well, well, no, we really want to engage with this stuff. The course was called Life After Oil, um, and we were both sort of looking for what we could do that seemed seemed sort of worthwhile and meaningful in response to it. Um, and I remember Rob Rob Hopkins coming in and sort of saying, oh, I've had this, this crazy idea, Transition Towns, and uh, we've just sort of just started doing some stuff about it here in Totnes, and, um, you know, do you, do you think it's an idea that can go somewhere? And I think there were about about 28 of us, I think, on the on the course, and we were all sort of, yeah, this sounds, sounds really exciting. And I remember Ben and I, who really, really clicked sort of in the first week of the course, um, looking at each other and going, wow, this guy's really got something. And uh, and Ben put his hand up and he said, uh, Rob, if you had, I think he said something like, if you had if you had 100 grand to really sort of ramp up this transition idea and do something with it, what what, what would you do? And Rob sort of looked back at him all sly and said, why, have you got 100 grand you're looking to, to put into something? And Ben said, well, no, but, you know, I think I could raise it with an idea like this. And um, And the two of them then went off into a corner and ended up starting the Transition Network, which is, uh, the charity which um, which sort of supports transition initiatives around the world in various ways, um, and so uh, I was sort of in in on the ground floor, if you like, on 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 transition sort of taking off, and then my book emerged later when um, a lot of the the individual transition communities were trying to produce what we call uh, energy descent action plans, which is essentially a community looking at. Um, where they're at now and where they what what they dream their community to look like in 20 years, and um, given an understanding of of climate change and of peak oil and of of economic crisis, um, what would we what would we love Kingston, for example, where I'm based, to look like in say 2032? And a lot of the communities were trying to do this, but they were struggling because they knew about their their local their local needs and their local resources and their local skills, but they didn't know so much about um, the non-local things that were going to affect them. So from from things like climate change and peak oil and how those are going to develop, but also sort of UK government policy decisions and you know these larger scale issues that were going to affect the local scale. And so a lot of them were were sort of phoning up transition network and saying, well, how do we how do we do this energy descent action plan without that? Um, and so uh, Rob or Ben from Transition Network sort of phoned me up and asked if I'd like to do a, a piece of work sort of um, scoping out some of these issues and, and doing some sort of future scenario planning around the different ways that, um, that the next 20 years could pan out. Um, and what over the sort of couple of years that I spent working on the project that eventually became the book, um, one of the things that really emerged from that was this notion of um, cultural stories. And I, I know you did a couple of interviews with John Michael Greer on this show, um, and he's someone who was was very influential on me in terms of um, in terms of developing that idea. And um, really, it's the notion that we we make sense of the world through stories. I mean, we um, we tell our we tell our children stories in order to sort of raise them and educate them. And politicians tell us stories and narratives in terms of you know how wonderful life will be if they're elected, or how terrible it will be in terms of someone else elected. 
and these stories really shape the 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 day-to-day decisions that we make and as i was looking at a sort of future scenarios for um, primarily for the UK but also the world, it seemed like there were three um, dominant narratives that really um, that shape our culture and the way that we respond. Um, and I think probably that exist in all of us. Um, and so one of those is this um, sort of business as usual, you know, this kind of attitude. Nothing, nothing really changes that dramatically and tomorrow will look basically like today and we just sort of plod along. And, and you see that, for example, in government policy documents where they say, well, here's the trend over the last 20 years and so we'll just continue that line on for the next 20 years and we'll plan on that basis. Um, and another really powerful story in our culture is, is the sort of doom story, if you like, a sort of apocalyptic vision of the future that, you know, ultimately we're going to get our comeuppance or, you know, religious apocalypse or, um, or you know, Terminator or whatever. And we see, we see this kind of um, vision of the future all over our, our sort of culture and in our films and books. And, and it's definitely something that we all sort of have inside us from our, from our sort of cultural upbringing. Um, and I think the third sort of dominant narrative is, um, is this notion of sort of what you might call a techno-utopia, um, a sort of Star Trek type vision where, you know, this human ingenuity has, has led us up onwards and upwards to this, you know, current pinnacle that society's never been more advanced than it is today, definitely tied in with sort of technological process and, and, and human brilliance. And that, you know, our, our manifest destiny is to, is to have this sort of idealized future among the stars and, and explore the nature of reality. And, and all three of these, these sort of narratives about the future I think are in all of us, and we all probably, depending on our mood, shift from uh, from sort of feeling that one or the other of those is um, is the likely future every day, probably, and and we respond on the basis of those expectations, and we shape our future on the basis of those expectations. Um, and one of the things that we really wanted to do with uh, with the transition timeline book was to try and um, make real a fourth narrative. Uh, and the reason for that is that it's it's very easy looking at those three dominant narratives to see why the the sort of techno utopia vision is is a much more appealing vision than the other two, um, and so it's very easy to see why people subscribe to that. Um, but as as other of your guests have said, um, the the facts don't really bear it out. I mean, if you try and actually justify the notion that this is the most advanced civilization has ever been, it's it's quite hard to do that. You know, we've got we've got high rates of of mental health and depression, and we're destroying our global environment at an unprecedented rate and and we're not we're not really moving the the um there's this lovely um chinese proverb uh if you don't change direction you are likely to end up where you're headed and um at the moment where we're headed on the current trajectory is if we if we look with an unbiased eye at the at the scientific evidence not looking too wonderful no i think that um, uh, sorry to interrupt you but i think oh, that where things are headed is basically negating the possibility of either business as usual or the techno utopia. I think exactly. that we can see things in decline now across a wide range of fronts, you know, man-made and natural. So business as usual is already being disrupted. That's not going to happen. And all the talk at the minute amongst politicians and economists and um, their ilk is getting back to business as usual as quickly as possible. But it's manifestly not going to happen. The techno future was supposed to be here 10 years ago. <laughs> I talked about that with John Michael Greer, and he's very witty in his writing about sort of debunking that. Uh, that, You know, that should have arrived 
Uh, it's not going to happen for all sorts of reasons we can go into. I think mm -hmm. that collapse is still a possibility, but yeah. if I was going to bet on either collapse or some kind of gradual step-down process transition to a different type of society, then it's the latter I'd definitely put my money on. Right, but in, in a, there's one very interesting thing about stories, um, particularly about these sort of cultural stories about the future, which is that um, there's a difference between our story of the future and our, our prediction of the future. So, for example, um, if you if you hold to a sort of apocalyptic vision, you know, ah, we're all doomed and we're, you know, humanity's going to be extinct within 50 years or whatever, then um, that seems a lot bleaker than a kind of business-as-usual perspective. But it might actually lead to a slightly better future because at least you might make some kind of preparations on that basis. You might actually think, well, if things are going to be that bad, I'm going to try and, you know, secure a reliable food supply for, for myself or my community or whatever. Whereas the business-as-usual believer... Um, might actually lead themselves into a into a into a bleaker actual future because they won't in any way prepare. And so there's a distinction between the the sort of future we expect, the future that we buy into, and the future that we're creating by buying into that. Um, and that's why, as as you sort of uh, touched on there, we tried to to flesh out what we called the sort of transition vision of the future, although it's it's gone by many other names, of course, um, which is a sort of it's a positive. Um, it's a positive vision of the future to sort of set alongside that techno-utopia, but crucially, it's, it's also trying to be a realistic one, one that actually actually takes into account sort of um, where we are and where, where we appear to be heading. Yeah, and I think it's very important to offer people uh, a vision, whether it's, um, you know, a technical, detailed, this is how it can be done uh, plan, or whether it's a, you know, a feeling about, you know that it could be better. We you know we we can't maybe right now count the ways in which it would be better, but we know that a lot of what we're doing now isn't working, so we need to change it. Yeah. So across the board, offering that to people, it's, it's basically the metaphorical light at the end of the tunnel, really. Well, hopefully, certainly. I mean, the um, the approach we sort of took in the book after laying out these these sort of four stories and where where they'd be likely to lead if they if they sort of shape our our, our politics and our cultural response was to look at each of um, well, some of the critical areas um, in society, so looking at food and water, looking at electricity and energy, looking at healthcare, looking at all these different areas, and for each of those, um, laying out the, the facts on you know what's happened up to this point and the trends and where they seem to be leaving, leading, sorry, um, but also then laying out what we call the sort of cultural story change that could exist around um, around each of those. Um, each of those things. So, for example, looking at population and demographics, um, sort of laying out the facts on that, and you know the the incredible explosion of, of human numbers that we've seen globally over the last few hundred years, and how actually that's often presented as a as a great triumph, you know, as human ingenuity and progress. And I often remember um, an episode of The Simpsons in which uh, they this sort of trial on the on the TV of a, a upcoming program called Man versus Nature: The Road to Victory, and um, and that sort of sums up beautifully the kind of um, the cultural story that's there is that you know we're we're overcoming nature and, and showing that humanity is dominant when in fact, um, as any ecologist will tell you, we're we're part of a web of life and that actually one um, one life form taking up so much of the um, of the energy input of the Earth, essentially, 
um, actually means that that web is 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 in a huge imbalance and 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 under under great stress. And of course, we're seeing this this great mass extinction at the moment that, that's taking place globally. Um, and that actually, you know, we are massively interdependent with the rest of nature. I mean, that's where our our food and our water and our oxygen for starters come from. Well, this is essentially um, um, James Lovelock's Gaia hypothesis, which however much any individual wants to buy into that, it's clear that if we change our perspective and see ourselves as part of this holistic system, mm-hmm. um, then, well, everything changes. That new perspective sh- shows us the, you know, the limits to uh, what we're doing on, you know, what we can do and, and the problems created by what we have done. And it points a very clear way forward is which the, the system must uh, get into equilibrium with itself. You know, what goes in, uh, what, sorry, what we take out of it must be put back in some form or other. That's how, you know, the Earth has existed for billions of years up until relatively recently. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it's it's one thing that sort of winds me up a bit in our, in our culture is that um, sustainability is seen as a sort of, in an ideal world, you know, if, if if everything else is good and you know you're you're making a profit and you're you're doing well in other regards, then you can you know throw a bit of attention to sustainability. Um, but we forget that you know sustainability that what the word literally means. If something is unsustainable, then it's it's going to end by definition. Um, and so all these processes, that, as you say, we don't we don't put back in what we take out, and we're we're gradually degrading the systems that support us. Um, and especially when you when you bring in the you know the the exponential growth requirements of our economy, um, exponential growth in an unsustainable direction is 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 very quickly moving towards um, towards its end. Um, that's true almost almost simply by the definition of the words, without even having to think about it too much. I would say. Well, it's, it should be obvious um, that nothing can grow forever. You look any system, any any being. It just doesn't work like that. I mean, it's not, you know, theoretically and practically possible. But we still have, I mean, here in the UK, but it's the same in the US and in the Eurozone as well. Other parts of the world, such as Asia and South America, maybe on slightly different parts of the cycle economically. But overall, the mantra from politicians uh, is growth, getting back to growth, uh, talking about it, as you say, like it's a unalloyed good. Yeah. Uh, when in fact, uh, what growth requires is uh, more and more resources, more energy, and that we basically consume more of the planet. Yeah. And it seems that, and I was listening to the economic news today, mm. and e- even in the teeth of the situation as things are playing out now uh, with the economic situation globally, politicians are still behaving like, you know, the financial crisis of 2008 is over. Uh, we're about to get back to growth and uh, generating more jobs anytime now. In fact, it'll probably be tomorrow. Of course, tomorrow never comes, and they just keep batting this off and batting this off with the same platitudes uh, that yeah. growth is required, our prosperity, and that somehow if the economy isn't growing, then we're not doing well. Right. And, I mean, I think it was maybe Edward Addy who said, you know, growth for growth's sake is the ideology of the cancer cell. And um, and if you look around nature, with the exception of, of things like cancer, generally things grow, and then they reach a state of maturity, and they stop growing. I mean, you don't, you don't take your... Um, your child to the doctor because he stopped growing at the age of 21. You know, he's 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 reached the appropriate size. But I think it's it's kind of uh, it's a bit easy for us to sort of glibly say, um, oh well, it's obvious. You know, growth can't go on forever. Um, and how how is the how is the sort of mainstream not realising that? I mean, I think there is a um, a, a deeper analysis to be made, which is that actually, you know, our economic system is is dependent on growth. 
um, you know, money is is lent into existence, um, and in order to to pay back the interest on that, there has to be growth, um, and also in order to deal with the the unprecedented inequalities in the world, um, and to make that anything other than a than a than a tinderbox of um, civil interaction also requires economic growth, and so I think it's it's a bit like um, I sometimes use the analogy of a, a trip to the dentist. You know, we've got this terrible toothache and it's getting worse, but we know that going to the dentist is going to be very painful. We know that actually ending growth, that actually changing our whole economic paradigm is going to be a, a very painful, difficult thing. And it is likely to lead to um, collapse for a given value of that term in terms of our global economy. And that will not be in any sense a painless process. Um, so it's not just sort of obvious, oh, well, we should just stop growth and everything will be fine. Actually, we stop growth, everything's going to be incredibly difficult. It's just that, and just like going to the dentist, going to the dentist is probably going to hurt a bit. Uh, the problem is, of course, the longer you leave it, the more it's going to hurt. And we are essentially um, building up more and more water behind the dam, if you like, so that uh, when, when we do come to the point of actually confronting um, the fundamental unsustainability of growth, the earlier we do it, the better. Um, but it's very understandable in a in a system where you know politicians are elected on short term, you know, four year or so cycles, that they're very keen that the um, the reckoning doesn't come on their watch. Yeah, well, that's but you know we are. I, I should say that in in pointing out the obviousness of like, growth can't continue and and that, you know the certain mm. fundamental things that need to be done. I'm under no illusions about what it would take to uh, achieve that and it'll probably be you know <laughs> uglier than I, than I'd like but uh, at some point we have to confront this and as you say the earlier we yeah. do it the better and we do have in fact the, the political um, system as it runs as you say short-term um, stints in office for politicians they're just trying to basically get through their uh, stint in power uh, you would would all actually have to ask yourself in this day and age why anyone would step up um, to get into the political arena, unless they, of course, have a calling and they're very ideologically motivated. Mm-hmm. Because it seems that a lot of the politicians, certainly in the UK and the US that I listen to, that they're trying to dodge the media, they just trot out some platitudes, another nice speech, and then just basically get out of the limelight as quickly as possible. So yeah. why are they actually doing the job that they're doing? You know, being, Becoming a politician is not supposed to be a way to get rich, to make connections, to get on TV... Uh, to get your teeth fixed and get nice, you know, hair. Mm. It's not meant to be about that. No, no, it is. It's supposed to be about trying to actually uh, shape the culture in a way that that, that produces a, a better future. I, I remember a friend of mine was asked um, in an interview just before, uh, just before the Conservative government or the the coalition government was elected in this country, um, if he had any advice for David Cameron in the election campaign, and his advice was don't get elected um, because you know the 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 various um, the various processes that are coming to a head are so fundamentally challenging. But as you say, the, the, there isn't any appetite within the political system for changing that. And of course, there's there's also the argument that um, given that so much of our political um, political outcomes in terms of elections are shaped by campaign finance, um, and given that we have a situation where you know the private banks are able to essentially magic money out of thin air. Um, then there is the question of to what extent the mainstream political parties are actually able to make changes um, of the fundamental kinds that we're talking about, um, because they're to some extent in hoc to those who who fund them to um, 
to actually get elected in the first place. Yes, and there isn't. Um, there isn't a mainstream party that that is advocating for um, for anything other than continued economic growth, and, and perhaps that's the reason. Well, yeah, I mean, the political control by money interests is very overt in the U.S. because of their system, and it's not so obvious in the U.K., for example, or in some other European countries. But make no mistake, that's the bottom line: is that you know the money, you know, money talks. Absolutely. Now, the bottom line of the situation we're facing is, is an energy one, uh, mm-hmm. because everything that we do, all human activity, everything we need, everything we want, everything we get is predicated, is, everything we do is, is energy dependent, whether it's oil or electricity. I mean, we need 24-7 electricity for virtually everything we can think of. Mm-hmm. If electricity was wiped out, you know, if some kind of solar event knocked out the grid globally, I mean, it would be complete pandemonium instantaneously and for a long time, if not forever. That would be it. You know, we really have constructed our society on a... Uh, well, I, certainly certainly in the, in, the, in the minority world, in the so-called developing countries, I mean, there's, there's an awful lot of the world that is existing without electricity right now, of course. So we're not talking about um, a universal human condition, but certainly in uh, somewhere like the UK. Yeah, well, the, the background to this is, you know, peak oil, which I've discussed with guests here, uh, numerous mm-hmm. times, and uh, if people are still not familiar with the the science behind that. They can they can go and check that out. But uh, it, it, suffice to say that you know oil is becoming harder to get hold of. Uh, the quality of that which is being um, mined and drilled is going down. Uh, it's getting harder to get hold of in terms of the yield as well uh, for any given uh, well. Yeah. And but I, yet no, I read today in the news that uh, thanks to the, the news item says improvements in production techniques, which I think they mean things like fracking, and you could argue whether that's an improvement, that uh, US oil production uh, is now the highest it's been for 18 years. Mm-hmm. And the International Energy Agency have forecast that the US will overtake Saudi Arabia to become the biggest oil producer in the world by 2017. And also that it, the US will overtake Russia as the world's biggest natural gas producer by 2015 and that those sort of headlines and this is a mainstream article give the impression that whatever people like you or I might say whatever any activist might say that actually you know technology you know the oil companies governments corporations they can sort it out essentially there isn't a problem hmm. yeah I mean, Rob Hopkins has a lovely analogy for this he says it's it's like a uh, an alcoholic, and he's in a pub, and he's 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 literally drunk the pub dry. There's no there's no alcohol left in the barrels at all, uh, and then he thinks, wow, this place has been a pub for 40 years. You know, a lot of people must have spilled drinks in here, and so he starts boiling up the carpet to try and extract the the last <laughs> dregs of of old alcohol that might be might be left there, and that's essentially where we're at. I mean, if you, I think one of the one of the um, one of the challenges for peak oil is that at one point, certainly, I think it's happening less now, but at one point there was almost a sort of rivalry between um, peak oil activists and, and climate change activists, almost, you know, arguing about, you know, which was which was the more urgent or which was the more more pressing problem. And in fact, of course, what we've what we've got is both, and and they they interact in in a in a complex but definitely understandable way. Um, I mean, the, the, you do sometimes hear this sort of slightly naive idea that well peak oil is going to save us from climate change you know that, that nature's almost taking our, taking our toys away because you know we've proved we can't live with them and so there isn't there isn't going to be enough fossil fuels for us to damage things and that's clearly not the case i mean we've already um 
raise the the temperature of the planet by almost uh, a degree, and and we're you know looking at various positive feedback. So it's it's perfectly clear that there there is enough um, fossil fuel there to exacerbate the climate problem. And in fact, um, what's also fairly clear is that peak oil actually makes the climate change problem a lot worse. Um, and that's because we wouldn't be doing things um, like you know the things you're you're referring to the the tar sands and the shale gas. We wouldn't be doing things like that if there was still um, cheap, easily accessible oil and gas available. I mean, it is scraping the barrel or boiling up the carpet, as I was saying. Um, and the reason that it's um, that we wouldn't be doing that is because the the energy return from those things is 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 much poorer. It takes more energy to get the fuel out of the ground, and then the fuel you get is actually contains less energy. So you're getting less sort of energy profit, if you like. Um, but also um, things like um, particularly tar sands are exceptionally high in terms of both um, regional uh, environmental damage and, um, of course, carbon emissions. And so, actually, peak oil is, is making the, the climate challenge worse because it's pushing us to more and more carbon-intensive forms of energy in our, in our desperation to replace the, the cheap and easy oil. Um, and one thing I think is, is, is not widely recognized yet is that you know, we know very clearly that we've got more than enough carbon in the fossil fuels that we've already discovered to bring about catastrophic changes in our climate and environment. So the, the clear necessity is to leave existing fossil fuels in the ground. But that actually turns the whole um, scarcity paradigm on its head, if you like. Um, I mean, if we were actually serious as a, as a, as a species about um, preventing climate change, then you end up in a situation where unexploited fossil fuel reserves are essentially sort of valuable but dangerous resources that we end up having to having to sort of guard against people who are trying to um, trying to pull them out of the ground and use the energy bonanza that they represent, which you know we know collectively we can't. So you can end up in a situation where you have a sort of governments guarding their fossil fuel reserves to prevent extraction. If we were in a world where um, where there actually seemed to be any any political will whatsoever to um to actually address the climate situation yeah it's a bit like in mad max 2 the road warrior which mm. is something i end up citing very often is that, and they, <laughs> the the they've, they've come through this horrendous um crash in society yeah. um you know humanity seems to have gone two ways one group are trying to cooperate and put something like civilization back together again the others are mm. just uh you know roaming um sort of, well, I can't think of the word, but just warriors really preying on people. Yeah. And all that the civilized people can come up with is to start refining oil again. Right. You know, it's almost like they're, it's so associated with civilization, the growth of, and everything that we do, that yeah. their response is, okay, well, we've got to find a way to get oil back again. And what we're trying to imagine here is something beyond that. And that because yeah. we don't know what that is, doesn't mean that we shouldn't start thinking about it. And this is what the whole you know, transition idea is about, to begin saying, okay, what could there be? Because even if there was unlimited, well, there wouldn't, nothing's unlimited, but even if there was uh, colossal amounts of easy-to-get-at oil, uh, there's a strong argument to be made, an environmental one, that we should just realise that actually this was you know, not a good idea ultimately, or we had our fun, and that we should move to something else. Well, just, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, given that we... Uh given that the climate science is telling us that we're in danger of, of fundamentally disrupting the planet's ability to, to support humanity, certainly, and anything like the numbers that we currently have, um, you tend to think that was a fair indication that it might be time to try a different route. But, um, I mean, one of the 
one of the things that sort of um, is a challenge for transition, I think, is that it's it's fundamentally a, a community-led process. Um, local initiatives sort of uh, decide what what's what's appropriate for their for their community and and adapt accordingly, trying to reduce their carbon footprint and to reduce their dependency on on money to a large extent as well. You know, to to um, start to rely on each other rather than relying on on this sort of fictional notion of, of financial independence. Um, but one of the one of the challenges for transition is that of course climate change by its nature is the kind of problem where um, if some people uh, reduce their emissions but the rest of the world doesn't then you don't have a solution it's not something you can really just solve for yourselves as it were um, and uh, and certainly within our current um, competitive economic framework um, if one community or one country reduces its oil use for example uh, then all that does is reduce the price a bit, which encourages someone else somewhere else in the world to um, to use more of it. Uh, and this is why um, transition is also sort of um, exploring this concept of of TECs, or TEQs, tradable energy quotas, which is um, a sort of policy framework for for addressing peak oil and climate change. Um, and it's a way of um, basically turning around that paradigm so that actually you have your national um, carbon budget or your national uh, amount of oil or gas that is available to you or that you wish to use, um, and then basically shares that out fairly. Um, and here, I think, in terms of um, in terms of moving this towards implementation, I mean, we can talk we can talk more about the the details of text if you like and how it would function. But in terms of actually getting the political traction to make this happen. I think here we get back again to the importance of those those cultural stories that shape our our, our decision making. Um, because if your story of life of, of humanity and, and our, our progress is that you know we're we're ingenious, there's basically unlimited potential energy out there for us to discover or, or find or extract or invent. Um, then from that mindset, if someone comes to you and says, "Well, we're going to actually need to limit your consumption of that because," well for any reason then they're clearly the enemy and they need to be opposed and they need to be fought against as hard as you can because they're trying to to limit this incredible human progress and, and improvement in living standards whereas if you come from a story which says well actually you know all the evidence is, is telling me that that we are reaching the limits of what we can and um, certainly of the energy we can extract without huge deleterious consequences from doing so then the obvious question becomes, well, how do we most fairly share out what is available? Um, and so that, that, that difference in, in fundamental mindset, I think, is, is what we need to be focused on changing um, before we can actually, to some extent, get into um, making the, the scale of changes that are necessary at the, at the sort of global, national, political type levels. One of the uh, major hurdles, um, as I see it, uh, which is still... Uh, presenting itself looming very large even in the teeth of this economic crisis is that we have a consumption culture hmm. uh, in the West and that of course is now taking off in a big way in China other parts of Asia yeah. and to an extent in some South American countries are starting to to catch up in terms of consumption and of course if we talk then about cutting or reducing demand in certain areas of the economy that are ostensibly you know unnecessary put that in quotes because different people have different ideas about what that is and that has an effect on jobs and that's all tied in with what we were talking about earlier growth but as long as people feel that a lot of their 
well-being and happiness is somehow entangled with buying stuff and owning things and uh, that if they don't have that stuff then they're they're worse off and will be unhappy um well, that's a huge uh, problem for us to get around well absolutely i mean there's been some fantastic work done by a group called the new economics foundation um around this topic um basically looking at how for um some of the poorest people in the world there is actually a correlation between um sort of income and and well-being if you like um, because you know, at the level where you're, you're struggling to, to feed your family or to, to find any shelter, then you know the ability to do that obviously does increase your well-being. And then perhaps beyond that, there's a point um, of sort of comfort at which, again, you know, up to that point, yeah, having more um, material resources does increase your your well-being or your fulfilment. Um, but it seems, based on um, some work they've done called the uh, Happy Planet Index, um, that it's only up to a level of around um, a national average income of about £10,000 a year that that effect holds. And beyond that point, income appears to make absolutely no difference whatsoever to, um, to people's self-reported levels of, of, of contentment or fulfillment. And that, I think, is, is one, of the, one of the key ideas, um, the key cultural stories, if you will, that, that we need to that we need to be sort of disseminating and spreading because it, it makes sense to us in a, in a sort of intuitive level as well that, you know, obviously you need to be able to, to eat and drink and have somewhere to, to lay your head in order to, be, in order to be content. But there does come that point at which, you know, you, you, you start feeling like, you know, your possessions are owning you and your life's getting too full of, of various, various sort of material commitments and maybe even, you know, there's the point of sort of extravagance at which your, your level of contentment actually starts going down as your, as your material wealth increases. Oh, yeah, I mean, so I think really the, the fundamental concept that we're missing is, is the simple one of enough to the point where actually we've had enough and now, you know, maybe we can continue exploring our fulfillment in other ways, maybe in, in kind of spiritual um, exploration or maybe in terms of our relationships or, um, you know, our appreciation of nature or whatever it might be for you as an individual, you know, art or dancing or whatever. Um, but maybe there is a point of enough when it comes to that material. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the Happy Planet Index that you mentioned, mm. it's rather telling that um, if you put it to, um, say, a lot of people in the UK, for example, uh, maybe who don't have a lot of experience um, of visiting the US, but they certainly know a lot about American culture. Uh, they'll know significantly less about Mexico, for example, and Mexican culture. But if you say, okay, you're going to be forcibly relocated to the States or Mexico, choose. Uh, I'd imagine the vast majority would say, okay, the States. But on the, ha the Happy Planet Index, Mexico is near the top. Yeah. And the US is languishing somewhere like 163rd on uh -huh. that. Which, yeah, you know, sort of better, better the devil you know kind of approach. <laughs> yeah, quite. And uh, that indicates, and you say the self-reported as well, that's very important. You know, it's not some kind well, of... Well, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, th I think that, you know, obviously it's a very hard thing to measure, sort of well-being or fulfillment. I, I, as, I, as I recall, the approach they took was a very simple one, and they just asked people over the last year, how would you rate your um, sort of happiness or satisfaction with life on a, on a 1 to 10 scale? And I think it was that simple, basically. It was, you know, how... How, how happy and content do you feel with your way of life? And um, in a way, it's, it's, it seems sort of almost absurdly simple, but it's, it's not a bad way, probably, of measuring that. No, it's simple because people will sometimes lie to themselves um, mm -hmm. uh, with regards to you know, something like how well their life is going and do they enjoy their work. 
mm-hmm. um, because they don't want to admit that they're unhappy or that they're not satisfied yeah. with things or that they, they would rather be doing something else or be with someone else or be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm noticing across a broad spectrum now, and it's it's not as widely reported as, as it should be, mm-hmm. but there is um, sometimes with reluctance, sometimes with great gladness, but there is an interest in a, a lot of people in uh, you know, minimizing things in their life, in simplifying, in getting back to basics, and uh, I find that very encouraging. As I said, you won't find it on the, the nightly news or in the most of the mainstream papers, what have you, because it's not basically our news is seen as bad news is the only news that there is. Um, but there are a lot of things happening at the grassroots. Yeah, I mean, there's um, there's a sort of a radical historian called Howard Zinn in the U.S. who wrote a book called The People's History of the United States and. I always remember a sort of um, piece of advice he he put out there, which was, you know, look for look for alternatives. You know, look for the stuff that the media aren't reporting. Look for the look for the the, the kind of cracks in the mainstream narrative if you want, and you will find it. But then always remember that there's a thousand times more happening that you didn't find. Um, and so don't don't sort of get depressed by the fact that it seems like you know the mainstream is is quite consistent in some quite quite sort of depressing ways because actually they're deliberately ignoring all that's happening and you know we're not the only people having this conversation um and the the truth will out if you like and there are a lot of people acting um in a lot of ways that we'll we'll never hear about and it's important to remember that and i think um in terms of the the question of of sort of growth and consumption another another piece of work which i think is is essential is um tim jackson professor tim jackson uh, wrote a book called um, Prosperity Without Growth, um, and that's another exceptional exploration of um, how our economies could function without growth in a way that still allows for um, sort of growth in, in, in well-being and in prosperity, as he puts it. Um, and this is really why, coming back to energy, um, I'm very excited by this idea of, of, of tradable energy quotas because it provides a way of looking at our, our current energy consumption and saying, okay, we need to actually reduce that. Um, we need to basically stop scraping the barrel in terms of the, the supply, the energy supply side of the equation, and start looking at our demand and saying, well, okay, how can we how can we live happy, fulfilled lives using less energy? But what I what I really like about it is that it doesn't, um, in a sense, it doesn't provide the answer. It doesn't provide a top-down answer. It doesn't say, well, you know, we've thought about it, we've decided this is the best approach, and so we're now going to, you know, in, enforce that on everybody in the sort of um, you know, what's often characterized as sort of green fascism, if you like. Um, but rather, it takes an approach very much in tune with the, the transition towns um, and basically says, okay, um, we've got this um, strict cap on energy use in the country and it's declining over time. Um, and so we're going to give out um, rations, essentially, quotas to to people on an equal per capita basis, but they're tradable. So if you're if you're particularly energy thrifty and you know you've already done a lot of work to reduce the energy dependency of your lifestyle, then you can actually sell your quotas to someone else who who needs more of them, um, whether because you know they haven't really paid attention to it or simply because you know they have a job like a I don't know a country doctor or someone that, that just involves you know driving around a lot and, and using a lot of energy, um, and so it provides a sort of a reward and an incentive to people um, for the work that they are doing, but it doesn't. Um, it doesn't sort of criminalise the the people who um, who are still living in a high carbon way, 
Um, and crucially, the people who are living in a high-carbon way, they're, they're paying for that, but they're not paying it to the government. There's no, there's no sort of grand overseeing body. They're paying it to those who are, who are being more energy thrifty. Um, so in the same way that the government doesn't need to oversee every cash transaction to make sure that the right amount of money changed hands, they don't need to oversee every tax transaction. Um, it's, it's something that can be a, a sort of light um, light touch in terms of in terms of regulation and oversight. So this um, is a little bit like the idea that um, has been proposed for reform of the tax system uh, to tax consumption rather than earnings. Hmm. Yeah, or indeed land, which is one thing that the uh, Caroline Lucas, our Green MP in the UK, has been talking about is um, taxing people on on land ownership as well. Um, well, well you you'd get someone like Land Securities then who buy up all this land and sit on it for decades, so that would sort them out. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. Um, and uh, and crucially, you know, it then allows for the sort of collective ingenuity of, of individuals and communities um, to figure out ways of um, of reducing their energy dependency, whether that's you know collective energy cooperatives or whether it's sharing lifts or whether it's organizing a, a bike repair workshop so they can get everyone's bikes in working order so they don't need to use the car or whether it's things that you know I haven't thought of and, and I'm not going to think of and I think it's very important that any um, any sort of policy that's brought in around this stuff shouldn't be you know we've got together the top experts they've decided this is the right way to do it and so we're going to enforce it it should be putting in place a framework that allows people to find their own solutions because Every every community and every individual's lifestyle is is very different, and um, and it's these kind of bottom up approaches that I think make sense. I think the the line that um, David Fleming, who who invented the scheme, who's passed away now sadly, but the line that he he had, which which actually radically changed my own thinking around this stuff, was um, large scale problems do not require large scale solutions; they require small scale solutions within a large scale framework. Um, and that's what text provides, really. It provides the framework to, to encourage and incentivize uh, local ingenuity around um, energy and, and crucially, um, people to, to work with each other in that, you know, if you see that your supermarket is leaving its freezers open and wasting a load of energy, then you're incentivized to sort of harass them about that because they're pushing up the price of, um, of the quotas for everybody. Um, but also it, it encourages that... Um, yeah, that, that sense of common purpose, really, in the country um, to say, right, we're collectively going to address this and we're going to address it together um, in whatever way seems appropriate at the local scale. Yeah, you mentioned um, the phrase green fascism um, mm. a few moments ago, and I think there's definitely a, a bit of a, a blockage here with some people in that, you know, feeling that they're being dictated to, yeah. uh, whether it's by someone like Al Gore who doesn't yep. exactly walk walk at how he talks it, or whether it's yep. you know grassroots activists who sometimes, if they're you know particularly militant, can can not come across very well in terms of saying yeah. you know you must stop that you must stop eating meat, you must become a vegan, you must start yep. wearing hemp sweaters, you know, and what have you. And it's a, very much a question of how this is presented to people, and if they feel that inevitably a lot of people will feel that they're losing out, but if they feel that someone's saying you have to give up, mm -hmm. you know, your luxuries and comforts. Yeah. Uh, and, and live in austerity for the good of the earth and mankind going forward in perpetuity. It's a tough sell. Well, that's right. And it's, it's, it's kind of when you have those scenarios where someone's sort of lecturing someone else about their environmental responsibilities and the other person's responding with disgust, it's, it's very easy to understand both sides of that. I mean, your sort, of, uh, sort of angry greenie is, 
is feeling, well, for God's sake, you know, the consequences of this are completely overwhelming and, and you know, your desire to eat meat is, is, is kind of irrelevant compared to the scale of those consequences and you need to understand this. And it's equally very un- easy to understand where the other person, if they're, if they're coming from a different, again, a different sort of cultural narrative in which, you know, it's all about um, human progress and it's all about individual freedoms and individual choices, well, then they're going to feel, well, hang on, you know, that's your lifestyle choice, and that's fine, and this is mine, and that's fine, and, and you should, you, you, what gives you the right to tell me what I should do with my life? And this is why I think the, the, the sort of challenge that we face is that really um, what, if I can generalize, I mean, what environmentalists are, are trying to do is not to impose limits on, um, on anything, really. What they're trying to do is recognize the limits that already exist, recognize the limits that are out there that, are, that our scientists are telling us about, and find a way to respond accordingly. But of course, if people don't, don't recognize that those limits exist in the first place, and the person who's trying to talk about solutions to those limits is going to sound like they're trying to impose the limits. Um, and again, as, as I was saying a little earlier, I think this is why fundamentally what we, what we need to do is um, meet people where they're at and, and listen to them, really, you know, because I think... I think it would be uh, it would be an unusual person certainly in the UK who hasn't hasn't got some awareness of um, the the consequences of the limits we're banging up against. You know the, the destruction of nature and and of climate change and of rising fuel prices. I mean people know that these things are happening, whatever their whatever their perspective is. And so really, if you actually rather than going in and saying, look, I've got all the answers and you need to listen to me and you need to act on them, if you actually just ask people, you know, what do you think about rising fuel prices? You know, what do you think about David Attenborough on the television saying how all the stuff he's been teaching us about in BBC Nature documentaries is, is, is being destroyed? You know, how do you feel about these things? And then you've got a basis for a conversation because maybe, you know, there are things they know that you don't know. Or maybe there are things you know that they don't know and you can actually discuss them. Um, and I think collectively as a, as a society and as a species, um, it's very clear that if we if we respond accordingly to the to the to the evidence that our scientists are collecting, there are better and worse ways to go, and we can all recognise those. Um, and it's only when our conversations become uh, sort of come from this very oppositional energy that we that we fail to find that. Um, and so, in a, a lot of ways, I would say it's more important to to um, get people on the side and, and be able to talk to them and, and meet them where they're at than it is to. Yeah, I feel the overwhelming urgency of, of um, converting them or convincing them, um, despite the fact that um, that the environmental crisis is is overwhelmingly urgent. Yes, I've spent uh, some time going along and speaking with people involved with the Zeitgeist movement, which mm. uh, you're probably aware of. Yeah. And one of the sort of things that concerned me a little bit was all the good intentions and, and some good work, uh, you know, awareness raising being done. And of course, the Zeitgeist films do a lot in that respect. There is still a sense within the groups that I met with that it was sort of us and them type thing. Yeah. And I, I just felt a, they were storing up conflict and in their interactions with sort of members of the public, other members of the public, trying to disseminate the information, there was already a sort of a barrier there uh, which yeah. was a bit unhelpful. And as you say, talking to people on their own terms rather than just sort of saying, you know, everything's on the brink of collapse. We must do this right now. Yeah. Here's the answer. All you need to do is sign up. Sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Because I think a lot of people 
join movements and what have you and become card carrying members and go along to a lot of talking shops but then not actually a great deal happens there's definitely a danger of that as well yeah. you know awareness is not enough yeah absolutely i mean i think i think zeitgeist is it's not something that i'm i've sort of heavily engaged with because to be honest it i mean there's sort of two hesitations i had about it i mean one one is that it's it's very much still part of the the um kind of high technology um human ingenuity and progress narrative which as I say, I think is is one of the the fundamental things that we need to we need to challenge. Um, but also, yeah, as you were saying, it's it's, it's got this um, this sort of advocacy without too much action thing about it. Somehow, I, I, I'm yet I'm yet to see, um, and you know, maybe maybe I've missed it, but I'm yet to see uh, a on the ground project helping people that's been organised by. Um, the zeitgeist movement um, it seems to be to a large extent people uh, meeting up and agreeing with each other that you know human development should be moving in a particular direction mm-hmm. um, but as far as I'm aware there isn't um, a great deal happening on the ground to to move things in that direction beyond as you say a, a, a pretty um, pretty good effort at, at sort of awareness raising um, and so I'm sure it prompts a lot of a lot of interesting thinking and, and discussion around important issues and, and I'm sure it moves a lot of people in um, in a positive direction but it isn't something that sort of personally you know inspired me to 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 sort of pour my time into as it were. No well in terms of the techno utopia future that possible mm-hmm. or perhaps impossible scenario um, the for a while the zeitgeist movement actually grew out of something called the venus project mm, uh yeah. which was practically a one-man band uh, consisting of a guy called jacques fresco now yeah. he produced some really good theoretical ideas and some of the most stunningly beautiful designs for buildings i've ever seen mm-hmm. but he's a very old man now and he's been on this trip of his since at least the 60s as far as i know mm-hmm. and he hasn't found any backers and nothing materially has happened of all, from all his plans, yeah. and that that tells me something. Maybe he's difficult to work with, but it does tell me something, you know. Yeah, well, really. yeah. I mean, I, I've read some very very beautiful science fiction, um, but and it, uh, and I find science fiction a, a, a beautiful thing. I mean, it's it's a way of exploring possible futures in a in a creative and enjoyable and interesting way. Um, but there does come a point at which you have to take the things that you've gleaned from that and and bring them back to. To reality and implementation, and um, another line actually from from David Fleming, he said once that um, he thinks localization stands at best at the limits of practical possibility, but it has the decisive argument in its favour that there will be no alternative. And um, yes. and I think in our in our sort of world of um, energy descent, um, we do need to be looking looking at where we are really in a more in a more realistic way rather than looking to where we long to be um and then if we actually engage with where we are uh, and make that more beautiful then we sort of we sort of live with the questions if you like rather than feeling the need to have the answers and we can live along step by step holding those questions and 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 exploring them the best we can and you know maybe someday we live along into the answers but i find that you know leaping decades or even centuries ahead to you know that's where humanity's going to get to it's it's often um it's often more of an escape or a distraction um, than a help in terms of in terms of actually 
ameliorating the, the human condition. Oh, it's a, in terms of the human condition, it's just a classic thing that we do, which is yeah. we're lost in the past or the future. Right. And quite often to our detriment, whether it's in our personal lives or globally. But yeah. uh, you mentioned a book earlier called Prosperity Without Growth. Um, That's right. Which I have read. Um, because a lot of people, their understanding of economics, uh, the economic cycle, is that this boom and bust thing that we you know, talk, talk so much about is inevitable. But of course, it's very destructive and it's not at all inevitable. No. Um, it's, uh, it's sometimes deliberately uh, engineered, uh, uh, other times just a byproduct of the economic um, system as it, as it operates currently. But there's a concept called a steady state economy yeah. uh, out there. Now, is that something that, uh, well, well it, it, it's kind of the explanation of it is in the title. And <laughs> yeah. It would be possible for us to get to a, a point where we can eliminate these cycles uh, a boom and bust. Hmm. Yeah, I mean it's a guy called Herman Daly who was the, the sort of the the pioneer of of, of that idea. Um, and in some ways, as you say, the 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 explanation is in the title, and you know it's obviously the alternative to to a growth based economy. Um, but in some ways, it isn't. In that you know it can be misleading the title of a steady state economy, and that um, it sort of gives the impression of everything somehow being in stasis, like, you know, we sort of almost press the pause button on the world and just hold it as it is. Um, and of course, that would be that would be profoundly unrealistic. Um, so there's still um, there's still space for um, for creativity and for progress and for invention. Um, but it's just that the the economic framework built around that is not um, is not built on the same sense of um, yeah, of, of perpetual debt and of perpetual growth, um, and it's, it's quite a sort of technical economic discussion to get into all the the, the arguments for and against that. Um, but certainly, it has the fundamental advantage that, you know, as, as somebody once said, you know, anyone who thinks that infinite growth on a finite planet is possible is either a madman or an economist. Um, yes, it may have even been Herman Daly who said that initially. I'm not sure. Well, money and economics should should uh, stem from the resources that we have and and the needs of you know human activity and interaction, not the other mm -hmm. way around. It just seems that that money has become this uh, it has got its hands on the controls, and it's the other way around. So it doesn't matter what the resource situation is, money talks, money trumps that. And no matter what human needs are and and the needs of the planet, money talks in and trumps that as well. Well, right. I mean, I think what's really useful here is to take a sort of more of a, a deep historical perspective, um, at least in terms of human history, and to think about, you know, what what did we have before we had um, this sort of growth economy? Because, and as people have, have said, you know, at the moment it seems almost easier to imagine the end of the world than to imagine the end of, of capitalism as it is. And... Um, and yet we can look at historical examples and, you know, human human history goes back something in the order of a couple of hundred thousand years. And for most of that time, based on the sort of anthropological um, and archaeological research of these things, um, it seems that humanity actually lived um, essentially in what they call a gift economy, um, which is one that isn't isn't based on exchange at all. Um, it's much more like the, the economy. I mean, it's worth remembering that economy is a word that's sort of been hijacked in a way. I mean, economy just means the way that we provide for our needs. It's just we're so used to the dominance of the money economy that we tend to think that economics and finance are synonyms. Um, and in fact, they're not. You know, finance is one way of providing for our needs. It's one way of achieving an economy. Um, but if you look, for example, within a family, uh, 
when you're born and your your mother breastfeeds you and your family you know bring you food and look after you there's no there's no sense of exchange there it's just a, it's just a case of well this member of our family has needs and we want to provide for them because we love them um and you see that you know go on in family relationships generally i mean if your um parents come over for dinner you cook them a meal you wouldn't dream of charging them for it um it would it would seem you know offensive and, and inappropriate to do so um and yet what we've seen over i mean particularly over the last couple of centuries is that the the realm of the gift economy has been pushed back and back and back and back by the realm of the money economy um so even things like uh, childcare for example now it's quite an ordinary thing to pay someone for childcare a hundred years ago, that would have seemed just as as bizarre as um, as paying paying your or asking your parents to pay you for cooking, cooking them a meal. Um, and so we've got this this ever ever increasing domain of of um, monetary domination. And again, you know, to go back to the the creation of money, if you've got if you've got people who can create money out of nothing, essentially, um, who've been given that power. Um, and then the monetary economy is stretching into more and more aspects of our lives, um, then in effect you do have slavery. I mean, you do have a situation where people are creating these these sort of money vouchers, if you like, um, and then they can tell other people what to do if they, if they want to get their hands on them. And more and more have taken away alternative ways for people to meet their needs. Um, it's It's ever more difficult to find a way to find a place to live to find food etc um without getting it through money um and so i think one of the other things that is really um exciting a lot of people in the transition movement at the moment is this notion of the gift economy and it's being championed by people like uh charles eisenstein who wrote a book called sacred economics and also um a friend of mine called mark boyle who's just brought out a book called the moneyless manifesto uh, and he actually lived for, for two and a half years in the UK without using any money at all. Um, and what's, what I think is exciting about this gift economy is that it allows people to get past the um, slightly deluded notion of financial independence. Because um, we have this, this notion in our culture that being financially independent is a very good and worthwhile thing to strive for and to achieve and you know you're you're a you're a responsible member of society if you're not financially dependent on anybody else um but actually financial independence is a myth because if you are quote financially independent you've got enough money to pay for everything that you might need you're not in any real sense independent i mean somebody is still growing your food somewhere in the world someone is still providing the services that you use somewhere in the world it's just that you don't know them <laughs> whereas historically you know you got those services maybe from the you know the village farmer or, or the village blacksmith or whoever and you had a relationship with them and it was out of that relationship that you to some extent provided for each other's needs um, now we've replaced relationships with money and we've come to depend on money instead of depending on our, on, on each other um, but we call that independence, um, and that is quite a quite a powerful and, and devious um, twist of language, just as it's a subtle and devious twist of language to conflate economics with finance. And so, I think one of the one of the key things that the transition movement is also doing is trying to push back against the money economy um, and force it out of some places, so that again we can come to rely on each other again. And you know, there are various initiatives like. Um, like Free Cycle, you might have heard of, and like uh, there's a website called Just for the Love of It and the Free Economy Movement. 
um, and particularly in those countries which are on the forefront of the financial crisis. Um, I've been talking to uh, transitioners from, from Portugal and from Greece and from Ireland, and they're saying, you know, as people recognize that um, the financial economy and money is no longer able to offer them the life that they want to live and no longer able to support them reliably, more and more they're going back to um, relying on their families, relying on their communities. And I think one crucial thing that I've learned through years of sort of community organization and engagement is that you can't really do community by meeting every Tuesday at 7 o'clock to, to you know, be a community organization. Community only really exists in a, in a true sense uh, when people need each other, when people actually rely on each other for something that they can do without. And I think that's what, what transition is becoming more and more about, is providing the essential services or empowering people to provide to each other the essential services um, that make their lives possible so that it's not just one more one more financial interaction like you know if you go to the supermarket you buy your food from a checkout lady if you fall out with her it doesn't matter you'll just go to a different checkout lady the next day but if you're actually dependent on each other you've got an incentive to work through the difficulties work through the the different cultural stories so you know your 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 would-be green fascists has got a reason to um to actually maybe moderate themselves a little and engage with the person who who thinks that they're out of this world and vice versa and to actually build those those deeper relationships that come from from working through difficulties together. Well, this really is what we're talking about here is localism, which is a big mm. central plank in the transition uh, concept, uh, because with the opposite of that, we basically have globalization, which has been, uh, we was increasing throughout the 20th century. And we were told all the way along that not only was it inevitable, but it was, it was natural, it was desirable, it was beneficial. But of course, it was only beneficial from before, basically those who were telling us that it was inevitable, natural and desirable. <laughs> and it's essentially a race to the bottom uh, in terms of resources and economics. We, we see that with, you know, jobs, so many U.S. manufacturing jobs, for example, being outsourced to China and then Chinese workers decide they want a better standard. So it can't be, it's not a process again that can go on forever. It is, there is a bottom and there's no basement. You get down there and that's it. And because of that, we now see globalization starting to go in, well, for many other factors as well, globalization going into reverse somewhat. And one of the side effects being that it is affecting employment, and that feeds into what you were saying about people having to look elsewhere for to sustain themselves. Yeah. And we also have I mean, the issue of technological unemployment, which is basically machines putting people out of work. That's ongoing, including in places like China and India, which had you know, been going, undergoing something of an economic boom for a little while there. Um, so all of this feeds back into what you just summed up, really, in um, more local approaches to everything. And this is somehow portrayed in the media as a little bit, you know, maybe slightly sort of jingoistic. And, you know, yeah. when, when British politicians are calling to get out of the EU, they're called, you know, little Englanders and they're small minded and we can't go back to the way our grandparents did things, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, we may end up there anyway. Well, I think. Yes and no. I mean, I think I think the, there's a danger of caricaturing it as, you know, going back to the past. I mean, that is something that that never happens. Um, as any as any complexity theorist will tell you, a complex system never returns to to exactly its former state. So, you know, there are genuine. I mean, technology is a very loaded term as well. Um, I mean, technology 
is everything from the development of language to the development of a microchip. You know, it's, it's a very broad term. And so to say that technology is a good thing or technology is a bad thing is a bit of an absurd statement. But certainly um, there, are, there are certain kinds of technologies that we've developed over this sort of bonanza of, of energy, which has freed us to be much more innovative, which will be incredibly useful to us in an era of energy descent. And there are some which we will very quickly jettison. And I think the reason why, as you say, that, that, that tide of globalization is inevitably turning basically comes back to thermodynamics, ultimately, which is probably the most established um, principles in, in, in physics, in science, as we know it. Um, and basically, you know, if you're, if you're globalized, if you're shipping meals thousands of miles from where they're grown to where they're consumed, if you're, if you're exchanging 20,000 tons of some good with a country and they're sending 20,000 tons of the same good back to you, well, this fundamentally takes an awful lot of energy, and energy um, in useful forms um, has limits, you know, in, in terms of peak oil and the things that we've been talking about. And so it doesn't really matter in that, on that level what our, what our cultural stories are or, or what our beliefs are about the future. Ultimately, thermodynamics will have its way. I mean, science, physics doesn't, doesn't really negotiate, despite the famous pronunciation. Um, famous pronouncement that uh, the American way of life is non-negotiable. I think physics is more non-negotiable. And, so, um, and so, yes, essentially we are seeing um, the, the return of localization. That, that quote I was saying earlier has the distinct argument on its side that, um, that there is no alternative. Um, and I think that can, be, um, that can be a really positive thing. I mean, if we, if we spend all our time... Um, like the mainstream media would like to, you know, holding desperately to that sort of techno-utopia story and saying, you know, I will, I will not negotiate this, I will fight against scientific reality with all my might, then the actual future that we create is going to be very unpleasant because we're going to be, you know, digging our fingernails in and being dragged across the floor by the inexorability of, of the energy descent. Um, whereas if we actually recognize the future that we're moving into and say, okay, well, you know, we explored that, that maybe doesn't have a future, so you know, let's take the best of that and incorporate it with the best of what our grandfathers did. Um, then hopefully we can we can build together um, a transition vision of the future, which will guide us to a place which is uh, a lot less difficult than it needs to be. And perhaps a chance to focus on what's really important in life. Mm, absolutely. I think um, maybe it's a good end, note to end on. There's a there's a line which. Um, which I'm sort of finding deeply inspiring at the moment, actually, which is by a, a writer called Wendell Berry. Um, and he wrote once that uh, protest that endures, I think, is moved by a hope far more modest than that of public success, namely the hope of preserving qualities in one's own heart and spirit that would be destroyed by acquiescence. And that really kind of sums it up for me. You know, we don't... We don't um, we don't react against the the absurdities of, of kind of mainstream culture and the the, the, the appalling consequences of mainstream culture um, because it's because we know that we're going to succeed, you know, because we know that we're going to be able to send this around. Because you know, on climate change, for example, there's, there's a very strong case that we're that we're not going to be able to avoid a sort of runaway destabilization of our climate. But the reason that people get burned out is because they they make their um their their activism or their work dependent on on success in that way whereas if we do it just because it's who we are because it's what we believe in and it's the kind of life we actually want to live 
then that is actually a sustaining thing. It's a it's a it's a delightful thing. Um, and there's a, this idea of doing doing the thing that makes you come alive, basically, rather than the thing that you feel is you know appropriate or necessary, because that's more of a that's more of a brain decision, if you like. Whereas I think um, I think we need to trust our our heart and our spirit and um, follow the paths that inspire us. I couldn't agree more. Well, Sean, just to wrap up, um, listeners can go online and find the Transition Movement website quite easily, and they can find out what's happening uh, near them with regards to this. But perhaps you'd just like to tell us about uh, your websites, publications, events, anything at all you'd like to put out there. Uh, Yeah, well, my website is called um, darkoptimism.org, and that's a sort of exploration of, well, all the various things that that we've talked about today. Um, I've also um, in a few publications recently. Um, there was a book last year called Grow Small, Think Beautiful, which was a sort of development of, of Schumacher's thinking around this. Um, and this year, um, two books called one called The Future We Deserve, and another one called What We Are Fighting For, which is a which is an interesting piece from Pluto Press, which is sort of looking at the uh, the massive protests that have been around the world and. Um, and sort of trying to answer the question that the, me- the mainstream media are always putting to people, like, do you actually know what you're complaining about? You know, do you actually know what you want? Um, and so that's pulled together a very diverse group of, of activists and thinkers um, to sort of answer that question and, and lay out um, a sort of radical collective manifesto. Um, and so that's what we are fighting for, and that's, um, that's out a few months ago, I think. Sean Chamberlain, thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. It's been a pleasure, Greg. Well, that's it for another week. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website. That's legalize-freedom.com. You can spell legalize with an S or a Z, it matters not. There you will find an archive of programs on many equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>